You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Looking for something new to listen to? Check out this podcast. Hey folks, how's it going? My name is Augie, and I host a podcast called The Short Stories of Augie Peterson. Once upon a time, I had two blogs. Then one day, I started listening to podcasts. They seemed like a lot of fun and would combine the thing I was always afraid to share with the world, my writing, with the thing I had no choice but to share, my theater background. So I decided to combine them into a podcast for those millennials that don't have time to read two blogs. I read the original short horror stories I write every other Tuesday and review really terrible horror movies from Netflix, Redbox, Amazon Prime, and even the dollar store with massive amounts of snark every other Thursday. On the first Saturday of each month, I tell my listeners about five new indie artists that I have interviewed that I think they should know about. So if you like terrible horror movies, learning about new artists, really good horror stories, and total nerds, this is the podcast for you. Check out the short stories of Augie Peterson wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, go to augiepeterson.wordpress.com. Toodaloo! Human beings have many skills. Designing buildings, composing symphonies, programming robots, killing animals. Yeah, we can't really ignore that one. As George Carlin said, way over 90% of the species that ever lived on this planet, ever lived, are gone. Whoosh. Extinct. We didn't kill them all. No, but we definitely helped. And sometimes, in bizarre ways. My name's Moxie. And this is your Brain on Facts. The topic for today's episode was voted on by the Brainiacs over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Though I almost ignored the poll results because someone in the comments thought I couldn't make an episode out of the other topic. But you can bet your sweet bippy that I'll do that one soon. Today's topic was meant to be broadly notable extinctions. But research is, as research does, So it ended up being an all-bird episode. So here we go. Although extinction is a natural phenomenon, occurring at a background rate of 1 to 5 species per year, scientists estimate that we're losing species at between 1,000 to 10,000 times that background rate, with literally dozens going extinct every day through habitat destruction, exploitation, and climate change. Sometimes, though, we really excel ourselves. Take, for example, the passenger pigeon. Possibly the most abundant bird on Earth, early 19th century estimates put their population at somewhere between 3 and 5 billion, with a B, individuals, about a third of today's North American bird population. Records in the 1830s tell of passing flocks that darkened the sky for days at a time. They nested in trees in such great numbers that their weight would break off branches. There were contests to shoot as many as possible, with one winner shooting 30,000 birds in the time limit. By 1900, there were none left in the wild. The last captive specimen, a pigeon named Martha in the Cincinnati Zoo, died in 1941. The history of the passenger pigeon can teach us a lot about how and why species become extinct. Native Americans had relied on passenger pigeons for food, 
but by and large had learned to harvest them at a sustainable level. It was common in some parts of North America to only eat young pigeons that were hunted at night, since this approach didn't seem to scare away the adult birds or prevent them from re-nesting. But starting around 1500, a more aggressive species of human came to the continent. Were Europeans to blame for the extinction? Not entirely, though still mostly. A 2014 study published in the scientific journal PNAS suggested that humans were simply the final straw in destroying a species that was already vulnerable and could have been headed to oblivion on its own. The researchers asserted that despite their enormous numbers, the passenger pigeon, whose population figures could vary wildly, were already in trouble. Studies of the genetic variation of the species using an investigative method called PSMC formed the background of this theory. The PSMC, or Pairwise Sequentially Markovian Coalescent Method, can use the information in the genes of a single individual to map the history of the species. You should therefore be able to see how the species developed over many generations, and estimate how many individuals there were at any given time, all based on a single genome. Using this method, researchers found that the number of passenger pigeons was in freefall even before the arrival of the Europeans. Although the species might not have gone extinct, left alone it would still have shrunk dramatically, maybe to only a few hundred thousand individuals. It sounds almost too good to be true that you can come up with something so definitive based on information from just one or a few individuals. And in this case, it could be, at least if we follow the study published in the Journal of Science. That study claims that the PSMC method can't be used on passenger pigeons. Their research provides a completely different result. PSMC is based on the assumption that genetic variation occurs relatively evenly across all chromosomes in a genome. In passenger pigeons, though, most of the genetic diversity is found at the ends of the chromosome. The middle of the chromosome showed very little variation from one generation to the next as a result of the selection of these genes. The researchers behind the article in Science didn't use the PSMC method, but instead used a mitochondrial DNA, but instead used mitochondrial DNA from 41 passenger pigeons as their starting point. Science nerds and true crime buffs will know that mitochondrial DNA is passed down from your mother, from her mother, and so on, and does not contain DNA from your father. Variations in mitochondrial DNA also occur due to mutations, and happen relatively consistently over time. The study in science analyzed the entire genomes of four passenger pigeons and compared them with two genomes from band-tailed pigeons, one of their closest relatives. The final result was that the new study ended up with completely different answers about the passenger pigeon and why the species was headed to its demise. Scientists previously believed that the larger the population of a species, the greater genetic diversity in that species will be, but this proved not to be true with passenger pigeons. According to the article in Science, the large population size appears to have enabled passenger pigeons to adapt and evolve more quickly, based on the fact that beneficial mutations become incredibly dominant, 
which can lead to the disappearance of other genetic variants. This in turn leads to genetic diversity in the passenger pigeons being surprisingly low in relation to their population numbers. This may have made the species more vulnerable to change than other bird species. While a lack of genetic diversity made the passenger pigeon susceptible to change, it's still ultimately the humans that finished it off. People ate passenger pigeons in huge amounts, but they were also killed because they were a perceived threat to agriculture. As Europeans migrated across North America, they thinned out and eliminated the large oak forests that the pigeons depended on for one of their primary food sources, acorns. The advent of the locomotive was a boon to commercial pigeon hunters, because it meant great barrels of the little birds could be loaded up and shipped to other cities. The pigeons were probably dependent on large flock size to reproduce as well, and their instincts didn't work well when there were only a few individuals here and there. As the species was already dying out, a quarter million birds, the last big flock, were shot in a single day in 1896. That same year, the last passenger pigeon was observed in Louisiana. It was also shot. Shooting the last of something is sadly not rare in the annals of animal life that isn't here anymore. The culprit here is less the hunter than his boss, the private collector, or even a scientific institution. History is littered with the stuffed and mounted carcasses of animals that were the last of their kind, bagged by overzealous collectors who didn't stop to consider the cost of their kill. In collecting's heyday, bagging a rare species was a point of pride for naturalists, and wealthy wildlife lovers amassed taxidermied animals the way other people might accumulate art. Famous scientists like Charles Darwin and Alfred Wallace collected and preserved hundreds, thousands, even tens of thousands of specimens, most of which served a vital role in making new species known to science. Bonus fact, Darwin also cooked and ate many of the species that he discovered. I guess he was just being thorough. But collectors who traveled to the world's most remote regions in search of as-yet-unknown animals also had an Indiana Jones-like swagger. Competition to find something first was fierce, and institutions vying for new and exotic specimens meant that dozens of researchers would go tramping up and down mountains and into jungles to kill the same animal. Among the most famous victims of this is the Great Auk, a now-extinct North Atlantic bird with a penguin's tuxedo-like feathers and an ungainly waddle. Its population had been decimated by demands for its down feathers. The species was already teetering on the brink when naturalists and museums took an interest in the 19th century. Climate change during the Northern Hemisphere's several-century cool spell, known as the Little Ice Age, had greatly dwindled their numbers. The birds stood nearly three feet tall and sported thick plumage. They were a valuable food source and even more valuable commercial product. Adding insult to injury, the great auk's clumsiness on land and inability to fly made it easy pickings for the hunters. Paradoxically, it was the great auk's sudden rarity that made scientists so eager to kill them. According to the Smithsonian, the great auk's classification as endangered in 1775 led to increased demand for specimens. 
a single bird could be sold for $16 in the early 1800s, a full year's wages for most people. No longer hunted for its meat and down, the great auk and its eggs became a target for their scientific value. On July 3, 1884, a group of fishermen caught the last two auks on a remote island off the Icelandic coast. The fishermen strangled the birds to kill them while doing minimal damage to the body, and crushed the egg they were brooding. They didn't even get a meal out of it, which you could at least respect a little. The birds' carcasses were sold to a chemist in Reykjavik, who stuffed and mounted the birds, preserving their eyes and internal organs in jars of alcohol. No one on record has seen a great auk since. The great auk was actually the logo for something I did in elementary school, or middle school maybe, called the Knowledge Master Open, a kind of Battle of the Brains tournament. We were eliminated in the first round. Dead as a dodo. The dodo, of course, being the poster child for extinction, probably because we effectively lost the species twice. How's that for a segue? Most people are familiar with the sad story of the dodo. This plump, flightless bird was so tasty and so tame that it was hunted to extinction within a century by Dutch sailors arriving on the Isle of Mauritius in the Indian Ocean. Fewer people realize that this story is mostly false. Were these flightless birds so tasty? Probably not, since the waste pits from the early Mauritian settlements are full of animal bones from the Dutch dinner table, but not a single dodo bone is among them. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Dodos also weren't as plump as you've seen in the illustrations. The pictures our pictures are based on were probably made from overfed captive birds or poorly taxidermied specimens. In the wild, the dodo was a much leaner bird. It's also unlikely that people were actively hunting them at the time. Mauritius is blanketed in thick, impenetrable rainforest, and the dodos lived deep within it, which could put them beyond the reach of all but the most committed hunters. So how can such an icon of human-induced extinction be so misunderstood? The answer lies in the shameful way the dodo was treated after the last bird died about 350 years ago. We have this continuous series of tragedies, forgetting the dodo over and over again, says Leon Clausens of the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts, but perhaps no longer because of the work of Clausen and his colleagues. Science is finally giving the dodo the attention it deserves. It's difficult to trace the evolutionary process of the dodo, 
due to the island's acidic soil and humid tropical climate, which is an unforgiving environment for fossils. What we can say for sure is that the dodo evolved at some point in the last 8 million years, simply because 8 million years ago, the island, a volcanic island similar to those in Hawaii, was underwater. Of course, the dodo's extinction is easier to pin down than its origins. Dutch sailors probably first encountered the bird in 1598, but the sailors themselves didn't make much of a contribution toward the extinction, says Clausens. At most, there were a few hundred people living in a coastal settlement. The problem was more likely the rats and other animals that came on board the ships, which spread across the island, eating dodo eggs and outcompeting the birds for food. The last confirmed sighting of a dodo was in the 1660s. The living dodo was lost forever, but specimens of the strange bird had already been sent to Europe for scientific study. In several museums and university collections, skeletons and stuffed dodos survived. Unfortunately, Europe's 17th century scientists didn't realize quite how valuable their dodo specimens were. The problem was that the dodo had disappeared at the wrong time, long before scientists were willing to accept that a species could really vanish forever. It was like the environmentalism message episode of the Jim Henson show Dinosaurs. There's always more. That's what more means. The great French paleontologist Georges Cuvier is widely credited with alerting the scientific world to the reality of extinction, but he didn't do this until 1796. This meant that the 17th and 18th century museum curators felt confident that there were more dodos out there to replace any specimens that were damaged. Specimen damage or loss was common, especially at a time when taxidermy was still crude and museum records were spotty at best. There used to be a complete dodo in Oxford, but they had to discard the majority of the specimen in the 1700s, keeping only the head and one foot. The British Museum also had a dodo foot, but they plumb lost it about a century ago. There's also a dodo skull in Copenhagen and part of a beak in Prague. And that's about it. That's about all we have left. The dodo might have fallen into obscurity forever, if not for the work of two Victorian researchers, Hugh Edwin Strickland and Alexander Gordon Melville. In 1848, they published The Dodo and Its Kindred. Inadvertently, Strickland and Melville kick-started a wave of dodo mania. This arguably reached a peak when the bird was featured in Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, which I would argue did more to help us remember the dodo than any scientific work. With all of the advances in scientific processes and thinking, we've surely moved past hunting specimens for display and study, right? It's sweet that you think that. In 2015, Christopher Filardi of the American Museum of Natural History scoured the highlands of Guadalcanal in the Solomon Islands for a bird he'd been searching for for two decades, the mustached kingfisher. Described by a single female specimen in the 1920s, two more females brought to collectors by local hunters in the early 1950s, and only glimpsed in the wild once, he wrote. Scientists have never observed a male. Its voice and habits are poorly known. Given its history of eluding detection, realistic hope of finding the bird is slim. But he did it. 
After setting nets across the forest, he and his team secured a male specimen with a magnificent all-blue back and a bright orange face, at which point his team collected it. Of course, collected means killed. While this wasn't trophy hunting, outrage ensued. The controversy led the Audubon Society, which had previously published a piece innocently entitled Mustached Kingfisher Photographed for First Time, to add an editor's note. This story has been updated to clarify that the bird was euthanized and the specimen collected. A researcher on Filardi's team, it added, quote, told Audubon that they assessed the state of the population and the state of the habitat and concluded that it was substantial and healthy enough that taking the specimen, the only male ever observed by science, would not affect the population's success. Filardi also felt compelled to write an op-ed for Audubon. Why I Collected a Mustached Kingfisher I have spent time in remote and not-so-remote forests of the Solomon Islands across nearly 20 years. I have watched whole populations of birds decline and disappear in the wake of poorly managed logging operations and more recently mining. On this trip, the real discovery was not finding an individual mustached kingfisher, but discovering that the world this species inhabits is still thriving in a rich and timeless way. Filardi stressed that, among Guadalcanal locals, the bird is known as unremarkably common. He explained how he and his team made the decision, neither an easy decision nor one made in the spur of the moment, to collect the bird with reference to standard practice for field biologists. Killing this one kingfisher might help to save them all. The mustached kingfisher is a fabulously brightly colored bird. I'll put a link in the show notes. If I forget or your podcast app doesn't support HTML, at me on social media. Facebook and Instagram.com slash yourbrainonfacts, and Twitter at brainonfactspod. Social media is a great way to help your favorite podcast by sharing the show with your family and friends. Word of mouth is still the most common way that people learn about new podcasts. Some extinctions feature a middleman between the humans and the wild animals. Another thing we're quite fond of is messing up ecosystems by introducing new animals. Sometimes it's deliberate, like introducing cane toads and rabbits to Australia. But other times it's more incidental, like pet cats going out and doing what cats do. Cats, be they pets or feral, have been responsible for at least 63 extinctions of mammals, birds, and reptiles in the past 500 years. One extinction is even blamed on a particular cat, a lighthouse keeper's companion named Tibbles. David Lyle was the assistant lighthouse keeper of a newly opened lighthouse on Stevens Island, an island about half a square mile or 1.3 square kilometers near New Zealand, arriving in 1894 with 16 other people to man the outpost, and of course, his cat. Lyle was also a naturalist, so he looked forward to being on the largely unexplored and uninhabited island. The term naturalist must have been a low bar back in the day, because he had no inkling of how much havoc introducing even a single predator can do, and cats are fantastic predators. In the book Cat Wars, authors Peter Mara and Chris Santella estimate 
that outdoor cats kill about 2.4 billion birds in the United States alone. A large number of these victims are killed not for food, but for the sheer fun of the hunt. Debate still rages as to whether the dead animals that cats bring home are their contributions to feeding the household, or more of a sign of pity on the poor, stupid human servants. Shortly after Lyle got settled on Stevens Island, Tibbles started bringing him such presents. He recognized most of the species dangling from the cat's mouth, except one. This bird was small, olive-colored on the back, pale on the breast, with body feathers edged in brown. It had a narrow yellow streak above the eyes, short wings, and a long straight bill. Lyle collected a few of them and sent them to renowned ornithologists. It was recognized as a new species and given the scientific name Traversia leali. While that was happening, the cat population of Stevens Island grew and they began to kill birds in alarming numbers. In Tibbles' defense, she wasn't the only cat on the island, and cats weren't the only invasive species, but she was the only one whose name was written down during this ecological destruction. The wrens were easy pickings for the cats, because they were flightless and could only run low on the ground or hop from branch to branch. They have no keel on their breastbone to anchor the flight muscles, their wings were very short and rounded, and their feathers were loose, so their flight feathers were not airtight. Of the 4,000 known species of songbird, only five were flightless, and all but one of them were a species of wren in New Zealand. The birds were originally found all over New Zealand, but predators like Polynesian rats killed off nearly the entire population. The birds probably migrated to this isolated island during the last glaciation, which is either a fun or terribly difficult word to say. The birds probably migrated to Stevens Island during the last glaciation when it was connected to the mainland. When the sea level rose, Stevens Island became an isolated safe haven with no natural predators. Until Tibbles arrived. By February of 1895, less than a year after Tibbles brought the first specimen in, the wren became impossible to find. Their bones could sometimes be found in the horked-up pellets of the laughing owl, who were themselves decimated by the cats. Lyle wrote to a prominent ornithologist, The cats have become wild and are making sad havoc among all the birds. Lyle's successor as lighthouse keeper four years later made serious business of hunting the feral cat population, though it would actually take 26 years to eradicate them, as anyone who's ever tried to catch a feral cat will attest. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Rather than leave you with one more fact, I want to close the show with a plug. Hours after recording this episode, I'm picking up my niece to begin filming Science with Savannah, age 7, a weekly podcast and YouTube show exploring physics, zoology, chemistry, you name it. Savannah is a natural to have her own show. She has all of my know-it-allism, but she's still cute enough to get away with it. I'm hoping it will launch in mid-May. Look for Science with Savannah, age 7, on YouTube and all popular podcast platforms. Thanks for spending part of your day with me.
As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.